1: Father, we just sing of trusting You. And I recognize in my own heart, and I think probably some of us as we sing along, if we think, recognize it in our own hearts too, a tendency not to trust. And we find ourselves professing one thing with our lips while knowing something else in our hearts. And I pray for that gap. And pray you would close it. We want to be the people who trust you. We know that you have saved us. We who are your people, Christians here, we know you have saved us. But as we walk through moments and days in life, we struggle to trust struggle to remember and struggle to believe that You are a Savior, good and strong, always faithfully carrying us through, always having a plan to do good to us. There's plenty of evidence all around us that would argue, that would shout at us otherwise, and we are prone to wander and prone to listen to that other evidence and prone to believe it. So God, we believe, but help our unbelief. We trust You, but help our distrust. Have mercy on us, Father. We are people who are small and frail, more so than we realize. We are involved in a titanic war, more so than we realize. pray god to draw near graciously to defend and support and uphold and carry forward victoriously your kingdom with us as subjects in it awaken us lord to some of our own uh, our own schemes the ways that unwittingly we, we contend against you. Awaken us to some of that today, but Lord, I pray more than, more than that, would you encourage us with your determination and with your, your good, great, loving, constant, sovereign concern to carry forward your glorious kingdom And from that awakening, Lord, would you awaken us to that? Would you show us that? And from that, would you cause to rise up in us a joyful rest, a trust? This is, this is the battle, Lord. We fight this all the time. And so help, please. Do good to your people this morning in this way, Lord, I ask. Grow in them dependence, trust, hope, joy, rest. Show them your your kingdom come, your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us see it in this passage that we'll look at this morning. In in the midst of all the, the hundreds of details in it, make it clear to us and draw us to you. And those here, Lord, who don't know you, draw them to you and awaken them and save Do good to your people. Honor the name of Jesus. I pray this, Father, King, Savior, Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, I ask you to come and move here. For the glory of God and for the good of his people, the church, I pray. it. Amen. Amen. Can you give me a little tweak on the mic there? We turn our attention this morning to Second Samuel chapter 3, where we will continue on with Saul's former army commander, Abner, as he interacts with the new kingdom of David. David has finally been anointed king, but he is only king so far, only king over the tribe of Judah, a large tribe to the south in Israel. Most of Israel, all of the north, is under another king, one set up by Abner, this army commander. Abner rejected the Lord's choice of king and set up a son of Saul named Ishbosheth, made him king in opposition to David. We read about that all in chapter 2. And while these two kingdoms coexisted for a little while, eventually they fell into civil war after Abner tried to use force to elevate his kingdom and to subjugate David in the kingdom of God. That all backfired, though, as attempting to use force to subjugate God always does. Backfired. And they fell into war. And not only did Abner not come out on top, but in the battle that happened that day at Gibeon, one of David's men named Asahel, you'll recall, brother of Joab, we'll meet him again today, chased after him and kept chasing him and kept chasing him, though Abner tried to warn him off. And Abner said, there's no use, there's no point in this. Stop, please stop, please stop. But finally, in self-defense, Asahel, trying to use force to advance God's kingdom, ended up dead himself. So we saw in chapter 2 that force neither advances nor trumps God's kingdom. Chapter 2. Chapter 3 now, we meet Abner with a slightly different take, a different approach as to how to advance his own kingdom. He's going to use some political maneuvering. But it's still Abner, still trying to lift up his kingdom, still dealing with David. This is a long chapter. There are a lot of details in I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's all one big story. But I'm going to pause at a couple different points throughout to make sure that we're tracking with at least the important details. And then I'll make a couple of overarching observations at the end. So this is 2 Samuel chapter 3, 1 verses 1 through 11. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. And his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital; And the sixth, Ithream of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? And then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to this house of Saul your father and to his brothers and to his friends and have not given you in the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Let's pause there for a minute and notice how the passage begins with talk, talking about the, how after the battle of Gibeon a war broke out. This is a long war Something probably in the neighborhood of a couple years, because that's how long Ishbosheth was king. We don't know for sure, but probably about two years. And gradually, over time, slowly, slowly, David was gaining the upper hand, growing in strength, and Saul was fading. The house of Saul was fading. And so, as to illustrate the increasing strength of David's house, we get this description presented to us in, in a very culturally relevant way, showing us the growth of his strength. His wives are multiplying. Indicating a growing political alliances. And his sons are multiplying. Notice we get the firstborn sons of all these women. These are heirs. Power is about size. And David's house is growing more powerful. Six sons, all from six different women. None of whom are his first wife, as we'll see. And as we're going to have to come back to. But he's growing strong. And Saul's house is growing weak, but someone else in Saul's house, verse 6, is strengthening himself Abner. Abner was the kingmaker. Saw this in the previous chapter. He's the one who took Ishbosheth and made him king, set him up. He's the power behind the throne, and perhaps Abner decided that he would rather be the power on the throne. I'm not quite sure. I say perhaps because it's not really clear if he did what Ishbosheth accused him of doing going into one of Saul's concubines. If he did that, it would be about politics and power, not about relationships. It's a political statement. A king's harem, if you will, the, the women of his household was a possession, a royal possession in that day and age, a very intimate, personal one from whom children were produced, heirs were produced, very intimate, you can imagine, Obviously. And the one who owned that and protected it or, conversely, failed to own and protect it, you could look at that and see who who has this possession under his control and who is intimate with this possession or who can't control it. It would say something very powerful about who's actually in charge around here. I mean, you, you can imagine. I'm the king. He sleeps with all the harem. Who's actually in charge? And either catches Abner or, like his father's always paranoid, suspects that Abner, strengthening his hand, has made this move, and Abner gets just furious about it. Maybe because he's guilty or maybe because it's the last straw. I've been defending this sinking ship all these years, and this is what I get. And he's going to switch allegiance to David. Verse 9, we've seen this before, but he knows. This is this is, this is this is perhaps the most amazing thing about Abner, that he has committed his life down one path that he knows is contrary to what God said. And here he brings it up in 9 and 10. I know the Lord has sworn to give into the hand of David all of this. And now I will accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over all Israel. I will accomplish what the Lord has sworn. The implication, I will transfer the kingdom. I will set up the throne of David. Abner is going to be kingmaker part two. Just now he's going to make David. So he thinks. Verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face." Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, "Give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines." And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her, all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, "Go, return." And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do, When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the King that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So Abner reaches out to David and proposes a covenant which is noteworthy because most often, not always, but most often, the greater proposes a covenant to the lesser. Abner has the chutzpah to propose to David, make a covenant with me. Why does he think that? Because he thinks he owns everything. To whom does the land belong? Answer, me. Not the king, Ishbosheth. me. Not the Lord, me. Make a covenant with me. And my hand will deliver to you what you want. I have what you want. Let's make a deal. And David says, okay, on one condition. And I think what David's doing here is he's, is he's kind of moving himself out from the lower seat to the higher seat. I'm going to make a condition that I require of you. Bring me my wife, McCall. If you were here back in, fir- in 1 Samuel, you know who that is. McCall was one of Saul's daughters. Saul initially married Michal off to David in the hopes of entrapping David in his own death because all that it required was that he prove he'd killed a 100 Philistines. Saul was crossing his fingers hoping that would mean the Philistines would actually kill David and he'd be rid of this problem. But David more than fulfilled the requirement and so Michal was married to him and she loyally then helped David escape from Saul's first big trap. But she stayed behind and Saul wanting to completely sever David from any idea that he was part of the house of Saul, wanting to, to stop there from being any son of David in the house of Saul, wanting to prohibit any kind of connection between the throne and David, took Macall and married her off to somebody else. And he hasn't seen her in probably ten years. And he has plenty of other women, as we just saw. David doesn't care about McCall, doesn't know McCall. This is about politics and power. And he says to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, says, Give me back your sister. David's taking a stance here of, of power over top of Abner, over top of Ishbosheth, over top of McCall. And by the end of this, everybody's clear who's in charge, including McCall's husband, who weeps after her all the way. Put in there, verse 14, to break our hearts. Here's a happily married woman, as far as we know. Certainly a happily married husband. Who gets caught in David's power play. He drags her away purely for the sake of establishing. I rule. Give me my wife. She's she's mine by rights. I bought her. I never divorced her. That was Saul's doing I don't care about her. I don't need her, but I'm going to take her. That's David. And Abner presents her along with all the tribes of Israel, including Benjamin, Saul's tribe. Abner went, (laughs) spouted off the word of the Lord again and persuaded all of them to come over and give their loyalty to David. David welcomes him. Makes covenant with him, that's what the feast is about, and the peace, and sends him away in peace. Verse 22. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace when Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, He said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. And then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. Abner and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. And then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. As everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Just after Abner leaves, Joab returns home. Joab's the commander of the army. He comes back from a raid. He's the brother of Asahel, you remember. And the text makes a point again. Abner wasn't there. He'd been sent away in peace. And then when they tell Joab about it, Joab was here and the king sent him away in peace. Third time it's mentioned. The king and his former enemy are at peace. And Abner is gone and Joab is angry, furious. And he accuses Abner of spying on David and endangering David and his kingdom, which is not remotely what he's concerned about. That's the most likely tactic to gain David's concern. Abner was here and of course you know he came to spy. No, he doesn't know any such thing. He came and delivered to him McCall and all of the tribes. And you know that he's come to spy on you and attack you and, and you and your kingdom are threatened by this. And David refuses to act on it. And so when he leaves, when Joab leaves, he sends a messenger. David doesn't know about it. The text makes a point to, to show us David's innocence in this. Joab calls him back, sep- separates him, brings him off to the side. Abner suspects nothing. And he kills him for the blood of Asahel. Says it twice in the text. Because Abner put to death his brother in battle, in the gate, the place of justice, Joab administers this injustice. In the gate of Hebron, a city of refuge, Joab exacts revenge. From a place where he'd been sent away in peace, he's brought back to find his death. This is appalling, and David is appalled by it. He's aghast, and he, and he calls down a fivefold curse there. You can imagine the different aspects of that curse. He calls down a curse on Joab and his house, and then tells Joab and everybody else to, to mourn and to mourn profusely for Abner's funeral. They bury him there in Hebron. And David's response of even refusing to eat until the sun has gone down, it shows in all these different ways, it shows to to all the people and Israel, that's the other part of the kingdom, the kingdom that had just been brought in to loyalty, it shows to the people and to Israel that David had no part in this, did not mean to break covenant, did not exact revenge. It was David's will that he go in peace. So a disaster is averted here. David says, though I was anointed king, I was gentle and gracious with this former enemy, more so than these guys. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. That's what David says. Emphasis on says. Doesn't do. We'll come back to that. That's the passage, obviously very long with a lot of points and... and Sub-issues and whatnot in it, but I'm going to make two main points that I think capture what we are supposed to take from this passage. So here's the first one, the first large observation. A warning. Beware of apparent allegiance to the kingdom that is really sinful exploitation of the kingdom. Beware of apparent allegiance Allegiance. Watch out for apparent what looks like allegiance to the kingdom of God, but really isn't. It really is a sinful exploitation, a sinful using of the kingdom to get something else, primarily to serve one's own kingdom. And I say beware of this because I'm saying watch out for it because it is out there. So beware of it out there in others that you encounter and, and especially beware of it in here. Within your own self. The text makes very clear to us what Abner's main concern is. He is about his own power, about making himself strong. From the very beginning, when he set up, in chapter 2, when he set up Ishbosheth as king, he did not set up a son of Saul so that he would have somebody else to serve and follow after and give allegiance to. He set up a weak man so that he could actually be a power. And when things change, he sees a, a better opportunity to transfer his allegiance now over to David and the Lord, right? No. He doesn't care anything more for David than he does for ish And he certainly doesn't care for the Lord or the Word of the Lord. He knows it. He can recite it. But why here? Because he just detected, I think I have an idea about how I can move these people. He tests the wind and finds out that actually some people kind of want David. And so I can be the one who pulls them over to David if I'll reinforce in their minds that the Lord wants David too. So here's the promise. The Lord is going to deliver us from all of our enemies, from the Philistines, through David. Let's make David king now. Now's our chance. It's all about the kingdom of Abner, though. He's advancing it on the name of the Lord like a parasite perched on the back of its host. Which is what Joab does too in a completely different way, but it's the same thing. What does Joab really want? Abner dead. Why? I'm concerned for the kingdom, my Lord David. No. He wants Abner dead because Abner killed his brother. Period. Not any more complicated than that. It's about vengeance. But he can't tell David that, so he sells it under, under a guise. Here's what, Lord, we need to be concerned about this, this man who has come to spy on us. And the kingdom is threatened by him, and you are threatened by him. He's couching this all in concern for, for David and the kingdom. But then when it doesn't work out his way, he jeopardizes the whole thing by murdering the one who has just delivered the kingdom. He doesn't care at all about the kingdom all about me. And if I can put it in a way that makes it more likely that I will get what I want, and if that happens to be the language of God, the word of God, the, the kingdom of God, the king of God, well, great. I will, I will pretend, I will put it out there if I find it expedient. But this is alleged allegiance. It is not actual. So you have two men here presenting themselves with a concern that is not actual. So the first thing here is just to be, beware of that tendency. It is sinful, it is wicked, it is common. It's out there in the world, it's in the church, it's in us. It's out in the world, especially in times and places where Christianity or the Bible still has some sort of pull, which is fading in our country, but it's still out there. Presidential candidates still find it necessary to pretend they are Christians. Though we haven't had one in who knows how long. If ever. And that might be shocking to some. If ever. Probably, I imagine I say that and, and a bunch of people are thinking, what about so-and-so? I just, if you're thinking about so-and-so, look up so-and-so's last interview in office on national TV and look what so-and-so said about the Bible and about who goes to heaven. And you'll find he couldn't be a member of our church. He doesn't believe the Bible is the Word of God. And he thinks everybody who's good goes to heaven. Not a Christian. But he has to say that, as does everybody. And in other parts of the country, if you want to do business, you have to say that. So be, beware of that. It's, it's, it's unfortunate how gullible Christians are. Beware of that. It's out there. It's in, it's in the church. What is all of church politics other than I will couch my own kingdom in the language of the Bible? That's all that it is. It's common out there. It's common in the church. But we really should spend more time thinking about here. Beware of what's going on in here. Brothers and sisters, far more frequently than we realize, we ourselves have a worship of expediency. Stop and think about this. A worship that is expedient, that is useful. An allegiance to God to get something. a tendency to to use God and God's Word and God's promises as a means to. Sometimes it's as a means to acquire something from some other people, a reputation amongst the church. If you walk around a church and and you can recite some Bible verses and, and act like a spiritual person, you will develop some sort of a positive reputation. Sometimes, it's to get something from other people. Worse, it's to get something from God. All I can say here, I, I do not want to stab you with this because I don't know you. But I plead with you, ask yourself, consider, does your relationship with God burn hottest? be most intimate, whatever language you want to use there does it burn hottest in the moments when you have need, and invariably it 's need somewhere here in this realm, on this level right here. My marriage is in trouble, my my job is in trouble, my health is in trouble, my parenting is in trouble. I have a need, and my relationship with God burns hottest in those times. Why? Why, 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 why? Why is that? Because I want Him to fix this need. What happens when the need's fixed? Or what happens before you think He's the only one who can fix it? Relationship burns cold. I don't need Him. i got this under control. Now it's been solved. Or uh, frankly, it's still in my hands. I can, I can handle it. Why is that? And, and again, I am, I am not trying to uh, bear down on you you. I'm just asking you to think about why is that? Why is that? I would suggest to you the reason for that is because this right here is, is what you think the real is. Is God just as glorious, just as holy, just as majestic, just as worthy of all of our all before your need arises? Of course He is. We don't give it. We don't even think about not giving it. Because what we're really thinking about, what we're really focused on the real in our minds. The real is, is just fine, just okay. Okay. But now I have a religion of expediency. I will worship him to get to get this fixed. Help! And when it's fixed, I'm out again. Brothers and sisters, there's something really wrong there. Let me turn it a little bit, and you can check yourself. You can look at yourself. It, I, I said about your relationship burning hot or cold. Let's turn it, check another way. Check. What happens if you don't get your way? What happens if people don't give you what you, what you want, or God doesn't deliver when or what? What happens then? What, what, what comes about? Something happens in a lot of us. Kind of a, of a turning off or, or a frustration arises. Examine yourself and ask, is there evidence there that I have, I have a worship of God that's really laid over top of something else that's more important to me, that is my real, my functional God? This kingdom right here, So I, I look at myself. I think what, the idea that came to my mind was, was the idea of a lever or a, a dial. Those, those two ideas. I think I detect in myself, and I think it's probably in you, a, a tendency to view relationship with God as kind of the, the lever that I pull to make life work or maybe the dial that I adjust to make life work rather than the life itself you see the image I'm trying to use there if you think about a dial the dial, uh, think of a radio dial people who still have those the dial itself is not what you're after it's what properly adjusting the dial will get you it's what you're after and when it's adjusted, you leave it alone And you hope everybody else leaves it alone because you've got it just properly dialed in. Is that your relationship with God? Is that the the worship of God in your life? The dial that gets you something else that you want. A worship of expediency. Abner uses the words of the Lord to strengthen himself. Joab uses the language of the kingdom to get his justice. Do we do the same? You need to be aware of that. Put that out there. I want to bring it up, and then I want to set it aside because it's not the point. It's not the point. Oftentimes, it's very easy to read the Old Testament and see things like that as if they are the point. That would be like watching a watching a movie with a a ship at sea tossed by great waves and storms and cyclones and running against a reef and dodging rocks. And all the time there's a, there's a captain at the helm who's steering it and giving commands and master and commander. And you watch the movie and say, man, I don't, I don't want to be a storm. Man, I don't want to be rocks. Better not be a cyclone. And missed the whole point. They paid that guy $20 million because he's the star. It's about him, not the storms. This is not, this is not, this is not, although I have to say it because we can't skip it, but this is not given to us so that we can read it and say, I'd better not be like Abner. There, I'm done. We don't want to be like Abner. We can't be like Abner. We shouldn't be like Abner. That's not the point. The point is to see a great captain who is steering something between the rocks through the storm, the threats to the kingdom that come, and even through all of them, he pushes forward the kingdom and lifts it up. That's the second point. Here it is in a sentence. Even through human sin, God is raising up His kingdom of righteousness and peace. Even through human sin, God is successfully raising up His kingdom of righteousness and peace. And when I say even through, I am not saying despite. I am not saying, even though, add in the letter R, it changes everything. Even through, God still raises up his kingdom. God uses sin by means of, is what I'm trying to say here. He uses the human sin in the passage and in the world around us, and even in me. Uses it providentially to lift up David, David's kingdom, the kingdom of God. So Abner's all about strengthening himself and only cares about the promises of God so far as they can be exploited to advance his own agenda. And he judiciously remembers them, opportunistically speaks them, gathers together all the right people, Proving I have the land. I'm the man. Here you go, David. All of it, all of it to serve himself and gain bargaining chips with David. Actually, he's not serving himself in all of it. He doesn't have any idea, of course. But the promises he's exploiting, they're actually divinely driven. They are real. And he doesn't realize it, but he's being used to fulfill them. He's a tool in God's hand to bring about God's end. God brought all Israel to heal, to heal under David, just like he promised he would. All of it because of the the tremendous self-focus and self-serving sin of Abner. And then God protected the new kingdom from having right next to the throne this man. He protected the new kingdom all by means of Joab's self-serving sin. So, this man in all of his sin gathers together all of the people and brings them over to David and then is cut down and removed. Severe, harsh, wicked, vengeful, unjust, and providentially accomplishing exactly what God means for it to accomplish. Even through sin, by means of sin, the kingdom is secured. Over and over and over again, we see this in the Bible. This is how the world works. This is how the world works. The sovereignty of God is complete. We must not reduce it to some accolades about how God is is so strong and so wise that He can work around everything that everybody else does and throws in His way. No more than that. He doesn't work around it. He works right through it. not despite of, but in every sinful choice and all the desires and all the actions of secondary human agents doing one thing for one reason, and God says, yes, absolutely, for mine. That's God, God's hand over all of the world that is an awesome, sobering, encouraging, sobering, encouraging power. I say encouraging. It's encouraging because this means that you can see sin and you can suffer under sin and you can sit in a place of vulnerability in the face of wickedness, painful and difficult as that may be, and, and you can say, I know what's going on here. God is at work in this to raise up the kingdom of glory. It's encouraging and it's sobering because it still hurts. And it's sobering because it says, you read this, you, you listen to it, you understand that God is not about eliminating all of the suffering. Yet. That's sobering. In this world you will have tribulation. That, that is the promise of Jesus. That's sobering. But it's encouraging. There questions arise. Why this? Why now? What? And the sobering reality is that you won't know the answers. I mean, read the book of Job. We know more than Job ever did. Job just walks through it. And at the end, in his moments of deepest wrestling with God, God just says, here's the answer, Job. Were you there when I made everything? No? Have a seat. That's the answer. That's sobering. But it's encouraging. As soon as you see the one who says, have a seat. He's the God of grace, power, goodness, and glory. That's encouraging. And we see him working through these particular evil things. A man who blatantly just, to the word of God, I know you said this, What do I care? And then a man who commits murder in the city of Refuge. Again, to the Word of God. We know people. You, some of you sit at the mercy of people like that. How frightening. But how encouraging it is that this is the God who's behind it all, controlling it all, and through it all is about something marvelous. And we see a little bit of it right here. If not for Abner's deep desire to exalt himself, how would all those people have ever been rallied and brought over? And how would David ever gotten rid of him? David's completely innocent of it. Joab is—he's guilty. But God's at work behind it to bring all of God's people together under the sovereign, saving rule of David. The promise is true. Through David, he would deliver his people. Through David, he would deliver his people. And God worked to bring David over all of his people, and all of his people under them, under him. God is surely doing it. That's what literally happened here. It's what's happening all the time in all of life. He's bringing a people, men, women, and children, to heal under the Davidic king, the one we need and the one your heart longs for. And this chapter should set us longing for it, resting in it, sobered, but resting in it. Longing for God to bring that kingdom, a kingdom like this one with a king who is... Gentle, it says, not severe. Gentle with his enemies. Willing to make peace, peace, peace with them. With a king who is a deliverer from the Philistines and from all of our enemies. We need that king. God's about bringing that kingdom. And we should cry out, bring it, bring it in me. I need that I see the glimpses of me treating the the worship of God as the dial or the lever. I need you to cleanse out of me this falsehood. This mistaken idea that I have that, that the real is down here. No, that's false. Cleanse that out of me. Bring the kingdom. Bring your rule. Bring David over me, please. But not this David. We need a better David than this one. Do you see how All through Samuel, God's doing this. You need David in this kingdom, but not quite that one. We need a king of righteousness and justice who will deal with all of the wickedness in the world, all that hangs over you. The only comfort you can have is if the God who says, I will work through that, also says, and I will give an answer to that. A God of righteousness and justice. We need that. And that's not David, unfortunately. He is royally hacked off at Joab. And that's all. He calls down from heaven a curse on him. May the Lord deal with you and your wickedness. And the Old Testament law... And the book of Romans would say, uh, You're the king, that's your job. That's why you sit on the throne. And David knows it. In chapter one, he had the man executed who claimed to have executed Saul. Next chapter, in chapter four, he's going to have the two men executed who claimed to have killed Ishbosheth, who did kill Ishbosheth. He knows full well. I'm the one who's supposed to execute justice in this land. It starts with me on the throne. And here's a man who unjustly exacted revenge and murdered someone in the gate of a city of refuge, my capital, and all I can say is, May God deal with you. I won't. We need a king better than that. We need a king who doesn't when. it's tight when the chips are down, say. Who won't say, you know, I, I think that six wives, seven wives is a really good idea because of what it will get me. Never mind the principle from Genesis 1 and the specific command of Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen, The king will not have many wives. Except for me, I will, says the king. We need a king better than that we need a king of righteousness and justice and we need a king of peace and of grace and of love not one who's going to verse 16 rip a woman away from her husband just to prove a point we need one better than david one davidic but better than david May God bring his kingdom even through human sin. May God bring the Davidic king even through human sin. That's what we should be set off to look for by this and all the other passages of Samuel and the Old Testament. And when you start looking, you find him. One who, even through human sin, was lifted up and enthroned. His name is Jesus. By His hand, the Lord saves His people from all of their troubles. You. Now, I highly doubt that was a surprise to you. I sure hope it wasn't but I say it to you again because the Bible says it to you again and again and again all the time because it knows we are prone to wander. It knows that worship of expediency is how we work. And this is another little piece in how God raises up His King over you to point out to you His good and glorious determination to do you good, even through the troubles in life. And bit by bit by bit, may God bless you, because this doesn't automatically happen. We are still sinners, still in the flesh, and still prone to blindness. But what happens by the grace of God is that a little bit by a little bit by a little bit, your eyes are lifted up, and you see the captain, not the storms. That's who it's about. Oh, He's so good to you. Oh, people, brothers and sisters, men and women. God is determined to do you such good. Do not, oh please, do not let yourself rest content to get him to feed some other appetite. He does you great good by giving you this king, this lover of your soul, this one to fellowship with you, not this one to give you something else to chase after. This one himself. It is absolutely true that He gives us abundant things also. Abundant goodnesses tangible in this life. Yes and Amen. Run them back to look at the goodness of the Giver. Marvelous He is. Rejoice in Him and rest in Him and trust Him and give Him genuine allegiance. Maybe that means that you need to repent right now. Maybe it means you need to cry in joy right now. I don't know which. Maybe somewhere in between. But there's a good God who is lifting up His kingdom, His King over you. Even through your sin, even through the sin of all the world around us. Bless his name and trust him. Let me pray. Father, please draw near to your people. Reinforce in our minds the centrality of of the glory of God. Not as a means to an end, as the end. Reinforce that in our minds because that is very hard for us to see in the first place and very hard for us to hold on to for very long. Help. God, do good to your people, please, in this way. Raise up the kingdom of Jesus and garner for Him genuine allegiance in His people. A willingness to suffer for His name, to set aside personal desire for His name, to be humble and nothings for His name. Do that work in us now, I pray, Lord. Amen.